Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest here on West Coast Live co-founded the Apple Computer Company. And those of you who have computers in your home, you have him to thank or to blame. His work at Apple Computer inspired other computer companies to make the machines that are so uh, ever-present in our lives. And since he left the Apple Computer Company to pursue other activities beyond the computer world and to pursue his interest in math and engineering, he's been involved in producing music concerts and has also spent a good deal of time teaching the fifth grade and developing educational values that he himself has believed in uh, for the many years. And he has started a new company called Wheels of Zeus. And will you please welcome Woz, Steve Wozniak, to West Coast Live. For those of you on, on uh, radio who might not know what Steve Wozniak looks like, there was a giant photograph hung above the Apple computers in the resurgence of the Think Different campaign, and many people said, oh, look, they finally got a p- picture of Steve Wozniak up there, but in fact it was Francis Ford Coppola. That's a correct, that's a correct story. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you very much for coming in and being on West Coast Live. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, did you take your electric car? Did you bring your electric car? I don't have an, oh, oh, the electric car. I sold the electric car because it was kind of like, uh, it was a little tiny car, and it was like uh, four nails in a coffin on wheels, you know? Oh, so it was a little anticipatory. But you don't mind getting into small objects with engines that might crash. Oh, well, I kind of like new and unique ones, and ones that look a little different, you know? I just always have. Yeah. Just interesting part of life. I was, uh, it's, like, it's like it's more important to be interesting than important. And like, I have a bunch of really strange friends, but they're all interesting. And so you're their important friend? Uh, no, I hope I'm interesting, too. <laughs> the, uh, your website, was.org, is, is filled with information and your philosophy. People write you, that, and you, you say that you respond to some 200 emails a day, or you, you spend a good part of your life continuing to communicate with the world. Well, yeah, the Internet came along, and then email came along, and it went up and up and up, and it kind of took over my life. And it's like, oh, how do I get away from this? Uh, so, <laughs> um, I do try to be open. Always had a philosophy that you should be open, accessible, reachable. Got a cam that points at me when I'm in my office. Hasn't worked for the last couple of weeks because I moved to a new building. Haven't moved the cam yet. Well, it's supposed to be moved tomorrow. Huh? But um, it's kind of like you should be, yeah, people should have a way to reach you and hear back from you. But the trouble is, of course, if thousands and thousands are trying to get to you for any reasons, you, can't, you just can't answer them all. When you were at a computer trade fair in 1976 and you had your little breadboard of, of the Apple One and you, and you were trying to, uh, to sell it. Could you have imagined in any way that you would be sought out in the way that you are now? Um, not at all because it's strange, but back when you're actually kind of creating these things, you may not necessarily have a vision of how far it's going to go and how much it's going to change things. It's like my vision was more to make a good product that did certain things for me, make the technology that made a, a personal computer possible. And it wasn't like, you know, fortunately I was around other people, like even Steve Jobs, that sort of had a vision of how personal computers could change all of life. But, uh, you know, we just didn't, you know, you just don't think when you're doing it. You just think, we're doing another good product, another great product. And you don't really think way, way a decade ahead. 
One of the aspects of, of Apple Computer that you would have liked to have seen develop, I get the sense, is that, is that it have a component like the Bell Research Labs, that there would be a, a think tank for scientists within that company. Do you think it's, it, it's possible for, for companies to grow to a size and maintain or, or, or have as part of their ethos the idea of research, pure research like the Bell Labs? Yeah, when we started Apple, I thought of companies that I knew, which was very few actually, Hewlett Packard and IBM and Bell Labs, and they all had large research divisions that were, had scientists working on the very nature of materials to make better and better chips, for example, and better, better technologies at that level. And no, Apple really got, took a different layer in, in society and in the products that it made. And the layer it took was, well, we'll pretty much search the world and buy the best technologies that everyone else can buy, and we'll just implement them in the optimal ways. So, you know, it's like there are a lot of different layers that are needed to make a product that's good for people. And we never really did that much research into the absolute low-level um, scientific type stuff. But I get the sense that was a dream of yours, that it could do that. Oh, I just imagined that any big computer company that ever started, yeah, would do those sort of things. But I was really only familiar with Hewlett-Packard and IBM from stories, yeah. Do you have a, a laboratory of your own that you work in? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I don't. And uh, since the internet and email caught up to me, I don't have time for that. <laughs> um, I wish, I, kinda, I have a lot of inspiration. Read a lot. I read a lot about what's going on and, and whatever the people are doing. I wish I could do it. Yeah, I have a lot of wishes. Wish I were sitting in a laboratory and just tinkering with electronic signals all day. But then I would, unfortunately, the world's caught me up in a different life. Would, is it easy to walk away? There are pictures of you on your website riding bicycles in the countryside, and I get the sense you do get out in the world. Uh, I mean, how could, is it difficult to spring yourself away from the, your desk? Uh, made an unusual decision a long time ago that, well, you've got a company, the company gets big and it gets successful, and you could just run this company forever, and that's your stake in life. And I said, no, 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 I'm going to be who I would have been without the company and, you know, just all the normal family things. I think, I think pretty much everyone who starts companies, the big executives in companies, they all have the personal life that's pretty, pretty normal and consistent. I don't think that many of them get dragged into where their whole life is their company, you know, 40, uh, 80 hours a week. So, yeah, things like, yeah, riding bikes. But I had a long-time goal that I wanted to be a teacher, too, and I actually stuck to that and achieved it and did it because I wanted to. I didn't want to change just because I'd had a company. Uh, I know it's probably too early to talk about the particulars, but you've, you've started a new company to do new projects. I mean, how do you, how do you plan your, how do you imagine your time will be with your new company? <laughs> um, all these years, I kind of sat back and I was able to kind of do the things I really wanted to do. And uh, like I said, the internet caught up to me and my email is really drags me down with time. But um, it's a real serious decision on my part to start a company again. And I'm just doing it for kind of like that entrepreneurial thrill of creating new little devices in the world and changing things and making some choices that are hopefully a little better than other people would make. And um, so I'm all excited about it. <laughs> It's a, it's, a, it's a big learning experience, both in, I'm kind of guiding the compass, like the little point that says, this is our direction, and keep everybody going in one direction, and um, that's a learning experience for me. I never really did that, and the engineering, I'm kind of trying to work on the engineering and make sure that, you know, they pursue degrees of excellence that I always believed in. And how do you do that? I mean, how can you do that from afar? Do you get in there every day, or would you get in every day and take a look at how the soldering is going, how the, you know, the, the chips are holding into the board? Yeah. Yes. 
<laughs> yeah, how the chips are, what chips are being chosen, what the parameters are, trying to choose different technologies for, you know, low power and using batteries and, and um, you know, how long it will last. And basically, I think as a user, the user has to have kind of a good experience with a product. And designers very often forget that. If it does this, it does that, and does that, and does that, it's good to a designer often, but the person using it just has problems with it and having to change batteries too often or hard to figure out how to make it work or, you know, when it just has to be a smooth experience in life because I think computers and electronics have really brought us a really bad, much worse experiences in how we get things done and get help and get support and get answers. Much worse experiences. Yeah, I think so because, I mean, just, well, uh, how often do you kind of go to a web page and you click and click and click trying to get to what you want to get to when you know it and you can't find it? And how often do you call voicemail systems and go along a long procedure of menus and get to the wrong place and have to dial back in again and try to find the route there? And you get people on the phone and, and uh, they don't know much to answer your questions. It's like if they had a little more intelligence, they'd be scanning um, the x-ray machine at the airport. <laughs> I've often found that, that sometimes Customer service is actually a euphemism for customer abuse sometimes. You know. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've tried to imagine, and maybe it would be life in another country, but uh, what it would be to our pace of life if we did not have computers, if there was no way that banks sort the information that they do, or, uh, uh, you know, planes have the computers in them, or, you know, we have the computer strength uh, to, uh, to sort out all the people who've decided to reserve and come to the radio show. I mean, there's... The world, yeah, if the world had no computers, it probably worked just as well as it worked as we grew up, which was fine. But, um, you know, there were a lot of good that came with the bad. I mean, there's just places that computers took us, even in entertainment and game areas that um, are really wonderful, that you really can't say that we don't have better than we had. One of your heroes growing up, Tom Swift. Uh, Tom Swift have any encounters with technology that didn't work so well or that he was unhappy about or was everything... A, a terrific invention. Yeah, well, I read the Tom Swift books about 40 years ago, and they were so important in inspiring me to want to have... A, he was a guy that had a company, and he was an engineer, and he went into the lab and designed solutions to anything that came up, world problems, space problems, alien problems, anything. And it was just so intriguing. It was so fun to read that kind of book. But I can't remember if he ever had, well, had, like, problems. I guess he had things that he kind of built, and they didn't quite work right, so he went in the lab and fixed it a little, and now it worked. But the book was kind of like for young children, so it wasn't written to spell out in detail. Yeah. And for you, you've, you're now reading the books, you've read the books to your kids. Yeah, I read the Tom Swift books to my, my first child a lot. Every night you'd read books. I read a lot of science fiction stories and these kind, because I think they inspire you to think in the in, in the outer world, you know, that maybe things are possible that don't seem possible at first. And that's how science fiction is. And it, I think, inspires creativity. And I'd rather inspire creativity in kids rather than they learn to, you know, relate a whole ton of facts off the top of their head. Do you find a connection between practical jokes and inventiveness? Um, well, it's funny, but... It, a joke, for one thing, is kind of you tell a story along one line and then you have a punchline and there was a whole different meaning that the words could have had. And that's pretty much what creativity is. Like if you're trying to design a product, there's a standard normal way to do it. But maybe you can get the same result by going in a different path and still converge on a good working solution. And it's like, oh my gosh, there was a different way to do this and it's better. And everything in software and hardware is that way. And um, so I think jokes and, you know, if you can make jokes, you can make products. You, you, you've had a reputation of a <laughs> as a practical joker. I mean, do you remember some of your best practical jokes? Uh, the, the funny thing is, it's so many, I won't even start on it, because almost the simplest story that I would start on just runs hours. <laughs> 
But there was a time where you you fiddled with people's TVs so that people thought they were broken, and you would make them kind of dance around them to get them to work again. And that was all, that was all the way back to college. You had a little TV jammer, and they would I, I would position their bodies. They would find that if their body was in a certain position, the TV would work. <laughs> if the hand was on the middle of the screen, the TV would work. And then when someone left the room, the TV would start working, and they would think he did it. So there is a connection then between uh, breadboarding and practical choking. Um, to me, there was. It was very, very much the way my mind tried to think of just different little angles that were kind of, in the end, when people found out what they were, they were kind of funny. Well, also the designs, well, the des- no, I would say in the breadboarding, totally different for me. But I think, I, but, I ha- but you know, you had to look at, look at the world and say, here is a product the way it's built today. But here's really what I want. It's a different little space, and I'm going to just build straight to it and use parts in the most optimal way. So really, my designing uh, methods were design things with very, very few parts, optimally. So they cost the least, they're the simplest to wire and understand, and be tricky and save parts. I get the idea that's one of your attractions to music, and say the lyrics of Bob Dylan, too. That there's, there are great ideas held within a very compact use of words. Well, I was kind of in, inner person, and you know, the words and songs always meant a lot to me, more than the music, even the words and poetry, like the modern poetry. And I wasn't into, you know, I wasn't that, I was a bright math star and science star, so I wasn't into poetry like Robert Frost, you know, and T.S. Eliot and all that, I, guys that I admire today. But um, so the songs of like Bob Dylan just had a lot of meanings of life and what it's about and how people think and interact with each other. and. And, you know, it was so important to me. But to a lot of people, you grow up and music is an important part of your life, and to others, nah, music doesn't really matter that much. I found that the best designers and thinkers and programmers at Apple tended to have classical music experience, which I kind of regret missing out on. It's like, I see so many people that are the good, the good designers and the good programmers that also are good musicians. And have you taken an interest in classical music? Do you have piano lessons nowadays? No, I appreciate it. I think, I think you get to, there's an age in your life where your mind can pick up certain things quickly, and there's ages where you're past that point. So I don't want to, I wouldn't try. I would think it would be as hard as myself trying to learn a video game as well as my kids. Uh, not possible. Not possible. The, uh, but there seems to be a, a malleability, a flexibility of the mind that gets, uh, was, was this, you think, inherent in your upbringing and the way your, your parents raised you, or is it just who you are that, that allows you to to think in these creative ways. Yeah, the malleability, one thing is, um, I, sometimes you have to be able to clear your mind out of what exists today. If you, if you are an expert at something, you'll miss the new approaches some, very often. It's very hard to, yeah, only a few people have that ability to clear themselves out. We were once at Hewlett Packard and we had a reverse Polish calculator and TI was gonna come out with the very first arithmetic calculator and everybody laughed, it'll never be able to solve the big complicated program pr- problems that we have on sheets of paper. So we pulled out a little card and I decided to be the guinea pig and I sat there saying on this new calculator that works differently, what do I do first? And I couldn't come up with an answer. And then I find, somehow I had this ability, I just erased my head, pretend I know nothing, go from left to right. Just went from left to right as fast as I could and got the right answer the first time. And I took the other HP engineers and I said, you just go from left to right. And every one of them held that Texas Instruments calculator and couldn't figure out what to do because they thought we're experts on deciding what order to go in. You know, which, which sub-expression do you calculate first? And they couldn't break away from that mold. And I think that was really a good example of something that, you know, I just basically uh, pretty much sit down sort of blank. Almost every single good design I did in all the Apple products, I had never designed those things before. 
Never once. Never a microprocessor, never a RAM, never a TV, never um, floppy disks. Um, so many, everything in there, never color. Just basically sit down, here's what I want to do, find a very clever, good way that takes almost no parts. And that was, um, you know, whereas most people would have sat down and sort of said, there is a studied research on this and I will do it by the standard way it's been done before. And, and that's really, that was really the most critical thing that I helped Apple with. How, how did you, as a, as a person, develop or nurture the freedom to be able to do that? Because I, mean, I think that yeah. requires a sort of a freedom and a confidence. Yeah, but a lot of people grow up as like technical kids and we were growing up with parts, resistors and transistors, and we would work in neighbors' yards and we'd get paid in parts instead of money because we wanted them. And we would build our own little projects and wire them up through the neighborhood. So we grew up, you know, building electronics and learning that my father was really the key influence in teaching me. When I said, how, well, how would I build this gate that I've learned about with a transistor? And he'd explain how the electrons go through a transistor. So having that sort of help helped inspire me. And electronics is just one of those things you buy a bunch of parts and put them together I guess it's almost like if somebody got tinkering with cars and started building their own cars they I mean that's their thing and so it was my thing and it I don't know where the creativity came from I, I guess because I had the electronics build it and I also had the math talents and sometimes usually very bright math students wind up being engineers but they haven't had that much practical build it yourself build something fun it was also fun to build these little prank projects for schools that would trick other people because they didn't know electronics they didn't know what was messing up the tv and all that <laughs> so you know putting the fun into it made you kind of gave it value and motivates you to keep going that direction and try to think of something new and clever and even in every little computer try to put in some fun little aspects to it and i think most most of the real outstanding designers just do that uh, naturally I mean, almost any computer program or computer you know of has Easter eggs built in, little secret things that if you learn a special code from somebody, it does something funny or it does something entertaining. Are there Easter eggs in the new G4s that you know of? Um, I don't have a list of Easter eggs, but there have to be Easter eggs everywhere. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes companies you know, start to say, no, no more Easter eggs. Do you think then that's a sign of sort of creative death in a company? Yeah, it kind of fights creativity. It's just like, um, you know, a kid goes to kindergarten and all the drawers are shut, you know? Well, if a kid wants to look inside one, maybe that's more the element that a creative kid would go because everybody has a mind that just wants to, when you're young, you just want to pick things out of the environment and find out and learn from it as much as you can. But we have real strict rules by which you have to learn in, in our schools. You know, it's all based on lack of money. You know, one teacher for so many kids, you have to have rules. Do you, do you think it's a mistake that, that, uh, that various companies want to just pour computers into schools uh, as, a, as a way of, to substitute for, for teacher-student contact? Yeah, as a matter of fact, well, that, it hit me because I was actually putting up a bunch of labs in my local schools and I felt sort of guilty that it's just like money and equipment, but really teaching is, you know, a computer is nothing, the hardware is nothing without the software, and the hardware and the software is nothing without the training of knowing how to use it. So uh, I, that's what really took me into teaching, trying to feel you got to give yourself too. And one thing I discovered was um, there is a lot of teaching necessary to use computers well and very, in very proper fashions compared to what we think computer literacy is, and that the teachers were further behind than the students. So I taught a few staff classes to teachers, and that was much more rewarding because if a student gets into a class where the teacher doesn't expect much in, out of computers, the kids drop down and don't do more than the teacher expects. So you really have to raise the level of the teacher's 
computer awareness, how the, how the computer can be used, how it can be used well, how fonts can be properly used and things spaced out and graphics not overused, not full of wild colors and things. If, what, what, what is the equivalent of having open drawers in a computer classroom? I mean, if, if, I mean there would be, a, I would think, a, a tendency for the school not to want kids to open up the computers that they've, the very expensive computers of the lab. Um, I think that's necessary because they, the students will kind of attack the computers. I had a nice situation where my class was sort of small, 30 or less kids, and pretty much I let them have you know, full access, and we even had a rule. If you can figure out a way to get into somebody else's computer through the network, you can play some tricks on them and hide their stuff as long as, as, long as you can restore it. And never once, never once in 10 years did they violate that rule of, of only doing little tricks that scared people, but it was easily restored. They just hid things. <laughs> That, that seems a, a lesson that not everyone would enjoy. <laughs> I mean, if you tried that in a corporate environment, for instance. Tried that in a corporate environment? The, 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 this was a principle of a small enough class that you could base it on trust. Uh -huh. Everybody likes being able to play some tricks, and they will obey the rules that don't mess things up if they're really given that permission, in my example. Yeah. I don't think I would trust it in my own company that every computer's open and... <laughs> You get points for, I guess, I, guess, I, guess, I guess, if you can figure out a way to mess up our network on the inside as a joke, but it's restorable instantly, okay, maybe. Have fun, have fun, yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's an attitude that, uh, uh, that not everybody has, and I'm, and I'm struck by the, uh, for, for instance, there was, uh, in trying to understand some of your achievements, the floppy disk drive uh, was something where you looked at a, uh, a machine. There was a completely standard way of viewing how the timing went on between the computer and the floppy disk drive. And you somehow looked at that problem and you said, why don't I let the floppy disk drive determine what the timing is? If I got that sort of right? I... Uh, it doesn't make sense to me, but... Oh, well, all right. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> but I tried to figure it out. I was lucky that I didn't know how floppy disk computer connections got made in the past. And I just sat down and said, well, the floppy disk is just like a tape. You put some data onto it, and you read it back, and you figure out how it works. But the floppy disk had all these chips in the way to send certain signals to cause things to happen, like go to the next track with a motor or do some reading. Signals after signals following a big complicated procedure. So I had to take my computer and put in some circuits that generated their signals, and they put in the circuits that took the signals and regenerated them back to the final signals that ran the floppy disk drive. And I said, cut out their circuits and cut out my circuits and just send the signals straight over that it needs. So that was like an optimization to save parts. Well, of course. I mean, now it's clear to me. But, and, and, but to be able to look at that, whereas engineers all around would not even see that as a solution, is, is, a, is a creative moment. I think that engineers would always say, well, of course it's real obvious what he did, but no, we, we go by the rules, and the rules are we get a floppy disk and it wants these signals coming in, so we'll generate those signals, and then it'll convert them back to the signals it needs. So I only have to send it, you know, four wires, and it converts to the eight wires that it needs, and they wouldn't think, why do I want to save parts? But I always judged myself. As I grew up, I designed computer after computer after computer on paper only, could never get the parts to build them, but I could only compete with myself, and I had to judge all of my designs by my prior design. If it took me 50 chips before and now I did it in 48, aha, I got a point. 
So it was always in my life, I could only compete with myself because I had to design computers over and over and over. And these were existing computers from Varian and Hewlett Packard and Digital Equipment and, and, and Data General and companies. And I always prided myself on being able to get fewer parts. So of course I looked at a floppy disk drive and said, how many parts are in here that are extra that could be gotten around if they had taken a different architecture approach? It, it sounds like your computer is just one part in your brain. <laughs> Unfortunately, it got to the point, yeah, it got to a point where I had, was keeping thousands and thousands of details all in one brain, and it was real intense and high pressure to just get designs done, yeah. yeah. Would, would you wake up every day with a smiling Mac, or some days would it be the sad Mac face? <laughs> uh, you go through a lot, when you're designing stuff and working on programs, you go through a lot of, oh, very deep frustrations to 3 in the morning, 3.30, and you just want to go to bed, trying to solve one little problem, and each step you think you're closer to the solution. And every once in a while, you get a kind of a whole job done, and you come in the next morning, you're so happy. But, uh, yeah, it's both sides of it. You, you spent some time... With, uh, with the Soviet Union and, and perestroika and trying to make use of, of computers and education and music and trying to bring about you know, peace between the United States, at least understanding between the, the United States and the, and the then Soviet Union. Um, how, do, how do those efforts look to you now? Um, I actually, yeah, I put a huge amount of money, at least a million dollars, into just basically U.S.-Soviet um, get-togethers. Matter of fact, I sponsored the first three space bridges with the Soviet Union, which, and no publicity at all. You'd call a press conference and five little reporters from small little journals would show up. And the Soviet Union had, had full publicity on their national channel to 800 million citizens, you know, with three minutes of me. So it's like it never got recognized in this country that you're kind of doing something to bring the countries together. And this was back in the days, you know, pre and during perestroika, where it was just people, you know, I got to know some people in the Soviet Union, they wanted to change, did this all on my own, never set up organizations, never publicized it, never really um, said, here's a, here's a goal, just started paying Soviets ways to come to the U.S. and travel to the Rotary Club programs and travel through the United States for um, weeks, because I felt that when you start talking to a person that's very much like yourself, and you kind of have the same values and the same goals in life, you start to realize they're really not different. And this, a lot of this tension between us that we are very different people really gets built up by the press and by the government with releases that kind of scare you, but you don't really know the people. So I was into personal person uh, diplomacy on front after front after front. And I was, glad to see, well, I was glad to see how it was all going. Do you keep in touch with some of the, the Russians? I don't keep that much touch now. Uh, that, that was just sort of a thing that I felt I was doing because it was right at the time. The, uh, the Wheels of Zeus has your initials, W-O-Z, Waz. How, how long have you been called Waz? Um, I started being called Waz around the time we started Apple. I don't know. It, I was working at Hewlett Packard, and every Wozniak eventually gets called Waz. Everyone in the United States is, is nicknamed Waz, and there's a lot of us. Well, thank you very much for being here on West Coast Live. Appreciate it. Uh, just by the way, we're an all-Mac office, and uh, it's, uh, it's made it possible to do our show. Anyway, thank you very much, and uh, pleasure to meet you, and thank you very much for being here on West Coast Live. Steve Wozniak in the Inventors Hall of Fame with Thomas Edison, Alexander Graham Bell, Tesla. And that's our broadcast here today from Palo Alto. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.